Everybody else, as the kids are being dismissed, please take out a copy of the scriptures and turn in them to John chapter 13. This morning we're going to be giving our attention to verses 18 through 30. John 13, verses 18 through 30, page 900 in the Pew Bible. Many of you probably know that tomorrow is my favorite holiday. Reformation Day, of course. Happy Reformation Day. Even that's not entirely accurate, for biblically there is no such thing as holidays, holiday, holy days, except for this day, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. What a gracious God that he gives us 52 days a year of rest. We're going to be talking about Sabbath from Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Bible study in a few weeks. So, so be there. Come. But today, many churches around the world are on this Sabbath celebrating Reformation Sunday. As tomorrow is the 505th anniversary of the unofficial yet infamous start of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st. 1517. Far less famous, however, were Luther's 97 theses, written only the previous month in September of 1517, criticizing some of the the prevailing scholastic theology of the day. If you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. Uh, But I think that in many ways, the 97 theses are superior to the 95, as the 95 are dealing largely with this problem of indulgences, which is no small thing. But the 97 dealt largely with the question of man's nature and God's salvation, and thus ultimately they dealt with the question of grace. For that is what the Reformation was ultimately about. No one disagreed at the time that according to Scripture, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God. But as Pastor Mike just prayed, the central realization of the Reformation could be summarized in one word, alone. As it was the addition of that adjective to those five nouns that changed everything. It is according to Scripture alone. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those five solas, sola just means alone, effectively summarize what the Reformation was all about. And so it was really a recovery of the gospel. The Reformation was a recovery of grace. And it is Luther's 97 theses that talk a whole lot about that grace. Thesis 68 said, therefore, it is impossible to fulfill the law in any way without the grace of God. Thesis 7, as a matter of fact, without the grace of God, the will only produces an act that is perverse and evil. You see, Luther was beginning to understand John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from grace, we cannot keep God's good law. Apart from grace, we cannot even do any true spiritual good. Thesis 9, the will is innately and inevitably evil and corrupt. Why are we talking about this? Well, it's because it's immensely interesting. It's because you love when I go into deep history dives or or theology dives. You love that stuff, right? What does this have to do with John 13? 
Well, actually everything, I could argue. For here in John 13, with Judas, we have one of the clearest demonstrations of the innately and inevitably evil and corrupt will and nature of man. And thus at the same time, we have here one of the clearest demonstrations of the absolute necessity of the grace of God. We have here then a perfect Reformation Sunday text, though it is a hard and troubling text. A text in which, verse 21, we see Jesus himself troubled in spirit. Why? Well, it's because of Judas, because of betrayal, because of death. And so our goal this morning is to see the evil and darkness of human nature separated from God and so to then see the absolute necessity of the regenerating and saving grace of God. I mean, you could at least make the case that Judas is like it's the great villain of history. He's the one literally betrayed the Lord of life. And so it's quite easy to kind of to separate ourselves and to distance ourselves from Judah, like we do with a, with a Hitler or a Stalin. Well, I'd never order the slaughter of millions, so I'm all right. right? I, I would never betray Jesus, so I'm all right. Well, hold on a second. One of the great lessons of Judas, Judas is that things and that people may not always be as they appear. And so he is here as a serious and sobering warning. There is a Judas. There is a potential Judas in all of us. There is a troubling darkness within all of us. Our passage ends with, and it was night. There is a night within our soul that apart from grace will consume us as it did Judas. Apart from grace, we are all of us Judas. In our sin, we are all of us betraying our Lord in a way. And so Judas and his betrayal is worthy of our time and attention. I've taken the title of this sermon from Matthew's account of this scene in chapter 26, verse 25, when Jesus reveals that one of him, them will betray him, that it kind of goes around the room. The disciples say to one another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then Judas himself says, Is it I, Rabbi? Well, let's consider that question this morning. Judas is about to depart from Jesus for the final time, apart from their brief meeting of betrayal in the garden in a few hours. But both Judas and Jesus are about to die, but very different deaths and for very different reasons. All of us, too, are about to die. It is inevitable, and it's all relative, whether it is tomorrow or many decades from now, our death approaches. What do we so need to know to face that death? What did Judas so miss that made his death eternally dreadful? Well, from our text, you'll see there in the bulletin, I want to draw your attention to five critical truths that he missed that you must know. Ultimately, we're going to see that what he missed is grace, but God works through means, and so we're going to build toward and conclude with the grace. First, four truths from this text put into the imperative form. Four things you must do and pursue to avoid Judas's fate. Four things. Point number one, trust the word of God. Point two, see the deity or divinity of Christ. Three, rest in the love of Christ. Four, rely on the sovereignty of God. And the big idea, I think, revealed in Judas will be point five. This is our only hope. 
You must be born again. And so let's read and let's consider Judas and see what we can draw from this. John chapter 13. I'm picking up right in the middle in verse 18. Jesus has washed the feet. He has commended his example to the disciples. He has told them that they are clean, but not all of them. So let's pick up in verse 30, in 18, and we'll read to verse 30. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, what a dreadful account we have here before us this morning. Father, you have given to us this word. You have inspired and preserved it. You have ordained that we would consider this word uh, this very morning. And so we ask that you would help us to draw from this word what you desire for us to draw from it. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that he works and speaks through your word. And so we ask that the Spirit would work through this word. Father, as we seek to understand Judas in his sin, may we see ourselves in our own sin. Father, may we see Christ in his love and his graciousness, his, his glory. May you draw us to him. Father, may we hate the sin that we often treat so lightly and that we toy with and flirt with and that we consider to be a small thing. Father, may we see that sin for what it is in the example of Judas, and may we run from it. And may we run to the very Lord that he betrayed. Father, show us that Christ. Draw us to him. Father, I can't accomplish anything of value in this time apart from you. Father, please now work on our behalf uh, through your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, trust the word of God. Well, where's that coming from? Where do we see that in the text? Well, let's, let's look at verse 18. Start there. We're picking up in the middle of the story, right in the middle of Christ's teaching. Jesus has just cleansed the feet of the disciples. Well, now he must cleanse the fellowship of the disciples. And so he has taught the disciples in verses 12 through 17 about the example that he has just given them of self-sacrificial 
other-focused, serving love. And he has said, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We're going to come back to that next week. Verse 17, Jesus has just said, if you know these things, my, my saving love for you, my example, blessed, happy are you if you do them. I was going to hear from Christ himself, from the word of God, is the only way to be happy. Here also, then, is an example of one who is not happy and who will not be blessed. As now Jesus turns to address the problem of Judas. He's been building toward this. This is not shock and surprise to us as readers, for John has been seeding the ground and preparing us for this. All the way back in chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus has said to the disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. Verse 71, then John adds to us, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we know already, but the disciples do not. They had no idea that it was Judas. They seemed, back in chapter 60, to have paid little attention to Jesus' revelation that one of them was a devil. But then again, in chapter 12, verse 4, John reminds us, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, parentheses, he was about to betray him. Parentheses. Parentheses are never good. Again, it's another joke. Couldn't resist. But John gives us a parentheses. Judas is about to betray Jesus. And then our very chapter 13, verse 2, began with the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And so Jesus has just told the disciples at the end of verse 10, you are clean, but not every one of you. And so John adds for our benefit, verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. So Jesus knows, thanks to John, we know the disciples as of this point have no idea. And so Jesus is about to enlighten them. Look at 18. Finally, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Stop there. We're going to come back to the revelation of the identity of the betrayer to the disciples in a moment. We know it's Judas. But do we know the significance of what Jesus has just said in verse 18? He's not speaking of all of them. He's not speaking of Judas. They're clean. He's not. They're blessed if they do this. Not Judas because he won't do this. He cannot and will not be blessed. The opposite of blessed is only cursed. To bless is to pronounce and provide good. To curse is to pronounce and provide ill, bad. That's going to be Judas. Next, Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. We'll come back to that. For now, focus on the next phrase, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And again, I always remind you, I am no Greek expert. But I don't know why they went with the translation that they did. In the Greek, there is a very clear and obvious word that that translation leaves out. And it is this word that John loves, which is hina, H-I-N-A. We've talked about it a lot. John loves hina clauses. Hina means that or so that. Hina is a purpose statement. And so look at footnote four, right? If you're looking in the ESV or the Bible, there's a little footnote there. And track that down to the bottom of the page. I think this is the better translation. But in order that the scripture may be fulfilled. That's the hina, the so that, in order that. The point is that this, all that is about to happen, even this demonic, wicked, dark betrayal, is no accident. 
This is, this is no surprise. This is not Jesus caught off guard like, oh, no, it's, Judas is betraying me. What, what am I going to do? No, Jesus has known this is coming from the beginning. Jesus has ordained that this was coming from the beginning. The scripture will be fulfilled. The scripture must be fulfilled. For scripture cannot be broken. Chapter 10, verse 35. And John repeatedly emphasizes the fact that what is happening throughout Jesus' ministry is happening in accordance with the scriptures so that they, those Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, might be fulfilled. Right? Just look back to chapter 12. The most recent one, the most recent time we just saw this was back in 1238. Though Jesus did many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that, Hina, so that... The words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so, look now at verse 19 of chapter 13. Look at how Jesus applies this fact. 13, 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. We know that Jesus is a prophet. He is not only a prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king. And he is not one prophet among many, but the true and final prophet who speaks God's word and reveals God's will. Right? We have no more words coming from God because we have the word, Jesus Christ, in his fullness. And we've been, this is like the main theme of the book from the very first verse. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. And that word spoken is then fulfilled again and again and again, always and perfectly. It is, it is one of the witnesses, it is one of the evidences of the reality and the truth of God. God says, and it happens. God says, and it happens. That is giving you evidence and encouragement to know that you can trust him because no one else can do this. No other supposed God can do this. We've seen this a lot in Isaiah. For chapter, in chapter 44, for example, verse 7, God says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is not. Because only God can say and then it happens. And so God graciously reveals his word often ahead of time foretelling that which is going to occur so that when it does occur according to that word and will you can be encouraged and confident in your trust in that word. Jesus says, I'm telling you this, that you may believe. And yet that's why the whole book of John is here. That's why the whole of God's word is here. And that word is, is such a word, such a wonderful word, a living and active word. I love Hebrews 4.12 and the metaphor it uses. The word is like a, a sharp two-edged sword. Right? Swords cut and they, they pierce and they penetrate. The sword of the word pierces to the very heart and depths of our soul. It discerns, it discovers, it reveals the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Right? Have you ever felt, have you ever been pierced and cut and by that word laid bare? Have you ever experienced this powerful, effective, cutting, revealing, exposing power of the word as it just exposes your sin and yourself and your darkness and your selfishness, but then at the very same time points you to the God of infinite 
compassion and mercy toward his children. It's a troubling and comforting experience at the same time. And the next verse of Hebrews 4, uh, 13 is pretty relevant for our consideration of Judas. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We, we all of us, stand completely exposed before the God of all knowledge. We are excellent at putting on masks and, and hiding ourselves from, from one another and, and of not knowing one another and of not revealing ourselves uh, to one another. God knows everything. We stand entirely exposed before him. Jesus knew Judas's heart. He knows our hearts. And the word is the means through which he, he reveals those hearts. It's the mirror that he holds up to us and you read God's good law and we see his righteousness. You see it most clearly in the character of Jesus Christ and you see how you do not match up to that in any way whatsoever. The word reveals our hearts. How you respond to that word reveals your heart. And so the first step, the first thing you need is, is to hear that word again and again and again. There's, there's nothing more important than that. For the word is the very means through which the Lord acts. The word is God acting. Remember, the, the first thing we learn about God is that he exists and that he speaks. And God said, let there be light. And it doesn't say that after that he like went off and started crafting or, or, or doing something or creating this, this, this light thing now. No, he said, let there be light, and there was. His very saying is his doing. His is a powerful and effective word. This is why we pray every time we come to the word. Every time you read the word, you should be praying. Psalm 119, God, uh, show me wondrous things out of, out of your law. This is why we pray before every sermon. Every, I, we can't do anything with that word by ourselves. But God, working through his spirit, can do amazing things um, with that word. It is his very acting. It's powerful and effective. Isaiah 51, it does not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. God's word always works. And so trust it. This is, this is the very foundation of our faith. Faith is the hearing of God's Word. But that hearing is no mere hearing. It, it can't be, right? Judas heard God's Word. Ju Judas heard the Word of God from the Word of God. He spent three years in the presence of God's Word incarnate. He heard that Word, Jesus says, 663, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He heard Peter respond in verse 68, you have the words of eternal life, but hearing he did not hear. Come to Bible study. Now, this is precisely what we're seeing in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is what Deuteronomy 4 is about. Verse 1, Moses says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them. Verse 6, he uses this important word, keep. And then he takes that same word, keeps, and then he applies it to us. Verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently. Are you keeping your soul diligently? Are you giving close and careful attention to your soul? Verse 15, Moses says again, watch yourselves, keep yourselves very carefully. In other words, 
Pay, pay attention. Right? Pay careful attention to the words of God, for they are literally life. Hear them and heed them. Listen to them and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, we, we just can't emphasize enough how everything depends upon hearing and trusting the word of God, on looking to and listening to and loving the word of God. Judas heard it. We're going to see that Judas hated it. Judas listened and he loathed. His was a failure first rooted in hearing or refusing to hear. And so the first step in our pursuit of fleeing and running from Judas is to hear and to trust the word of our Lord. Point number two. We are to see the, the deity or the divinity of Christ. Did you see it in the text? Again, where, where is it in the text? It's got to be in the text. Well, first, it's what, in what we just discussed. It's there in the perfect predictive knowledge. Jesus knows. Jesus is the omniscient God. It's implicit in his knowledge, but it's also explicit. Look back at verse 19 again. Jesus has predicted and foretold the betrayal ahead of time. That when it takes place, you may believe that I am stopped. You can take out your pen. You can just cross out that last he. Maybe if you're, not using, maybe if you're using a pew Bible, don't do that because VJ will get mad at me. Don't write in the pew Bibles. No, I'm not telling you to change God's word. I'm simply saying that in the Greek, the he isn't there. There is no he. In the Greek, I wish they'd left it out. For in the Greek, it simply says that you may believe, ego I me. We've seen this again and again in John. Ego I me, which translates I am, period. Nothing after that. The most famous example, remember, of course, is 858 when Jesus declares, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego I me, period. I am. God, Exodus chapter 3, is Yahweh, the great I Am. He is pure existence. He has no beginning or end. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is perfect in holiness and beauty, transcendent in glory. I Am. As you've been hopefully reading and meditating on this week from Psalm 8, O Lord Yahweh, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And here Jesus is saying, I am that. I am he. I am Yahweh, Lord God of all majesty. Jesus just makes the biggest and the boldest of claims. He is the word of God. We've just seen briefly what that word is and does. It is powerful. It's God's acting. It's an extension of God's being, in a sense. And so if Jesus is the Word of God, He must be God. And this is why salvation must be in Christ alone. For it is against God alone that we have all sinned. It's that very strange part in, in Psalm 51 where David, after committing adultery, uh, probably basically raping a woman and then murdering her husband, says to the Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Oh, it is, it is he that our, our sin is ultimately against. It is God that we have rejected and offended in a way that we can barely begin to comprehend. It is against the infinite and eternal 
God that we have sinned. And law of proportionality, injustice, the punishment must fit the crime. Infinite eternal crime, infinite eternal punishment. Only the infinite and eternal one could pay off the penalty deserved for such a crime. Jesus must be God. You must see him in his deity and divinity. Our salvation hinges entirely on the fact that the one we place our faith in is God himself. But this really could have been two points. We know that Jesus was not only God. 1.14, and the word God became flesh and dwelt among us. In the most amazing thing that has ever happened, More amazing than the cross, more amazing than the resurrection, more amazing than the creation of reality is the incarnation. God himself, the infinite, holy, transcendent one, becomes man. To represent us, he had to be us. He had to become man. And so look at verse 21. What a beautiful revelation of the humanity of Christ. It's not what this is primarily about, but it's, it's there. It's part of it. After saying these things... Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, don't forget the humanity of Jesus. Don't forget Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was the only Perfect human to ever live. He was what humanity was meant to be uh, as the very image of God. And just look at the range of emotion he expresses throughout this book. This is, this is helpful for me. I am tempted to a sort of stoic, masculine ideal of sorts, strong and resolute and, and unaffected uh, by anything. Right? There's actually something to that to a degree. There's some good in that. But it's not the whole story because for me it can easily slide into cold, unfeeling, uh, robotic uh, approach to life. That's not good. I think that's why in part I've said before that God has given me one wife and five daughters. Uh, six very feely, expressive ladies uh, for the purpose of warming and softening and sanctifying my cold, selfish heart. It's it's working. It's effective. They're, they're the best. Uh, but still, I don't think I'd ever cried before I had a wife and five daughters before. Now it's all over the place. But I still do. I hate sentimentalism. I, I hate sentimentalism. Sentimentalism is emotion in excess of its object. It's not that feeling is bad. It's when that feeling is excessive and out of proportion to what provokes that feeling. Again, it's like a puppy is on the screen and they've got like some of the most moving music ever. And you're like, oh, and you're stuck. It's the puppy. And it's the most amazing thing. Or like my probably emotional response to Carolina basketball has been overly sentimental in the past. It's not, again, it's it's the right thing feeling for the wrong reason. That's sentimentality most of the time. I want to do a whole sermon on sentimentalism sometime. But look at the verse again. Jesus was emotional, never sentimental. Verse 21, he was troubled in his spirit. That's a a strong word in the Greek. It means stirred up. It means agitated. It's it's, it's strong inner turmoil. Remember David. We just saw this with David in Psalm 6, verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones 
are troubled. Verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. And we actually just saw Jesus quote this back in chapter 12, verse 27, where Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. That's the second. This is the third. Three times in John, we see Jesus troubled. What's the common denominator? What ties all those together? It's death. All three times that Jesus is so stirred up in John are in response to the horror of human death. This is no emotion in excess of its object. This is emotion directly in proportion to its object. His soul is so troubled because death is so troubling. All of us have and can cry out at times with David, my soul also is greatly troubled. But here's the question, the convicting question. Why? Why is our soul troubled? I know that for me, my soul is often troubled because my soul, myself, is not getting what it wants, which has become what it thinks it needs, which has become what it then demands. For me, I am often troubled because me is not getting what it wants and thinks that it deserves. And so I can quickly become little better than Ahab curling up in his bed, pouting and pitching a fit because he did not get what he wanted in 1 Kings 21. I am still so prone to find my soul satisfaction in my outward circumstances, right? my ease, my pleasure, my success, my comfort. That's, actually, that's a form of sentimentality. That is my emotion being provoked by the wrong object. Christ, however, the perfect person, never had that problem. He was without sin. His emotion and feeling was always in perfect proportion. That which troubled him was that which should trouble him. And that was ultimately death. Here, his own death at the hands of one of his closest companions. I think that's what the end of verse 18 is about. Skip it. Look at it. I skipped it. Uh, Remember the scripture is being fulfilled And then the part part that follows is Psalm 141, verse 9, where David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, regardless of the specific meaning of the idiom, lifted, uh, heel lifted against, I desperately wanted it to be about Genesis 3.15. It could be, but I'm I'm just not sure. So I I just don't know. The point is that it is a close intimate friend loved by David that has turned against him. Many think this is in reference to David's friend Ahithophel who turns against David and sides with Absalom in his rebellion back in 2 Samuel 15. Betrayal hurts. Betrayal by an intimate friend hurts more. Betrayal by an intimate friend to death hurts most. And so whatever hurt or harm or betrayal you have experienced let's not minimize that, but let's see it in light always of the infinite harder hurt that Christ has experienced. Let's see that in light of the fact that he was the only perfect person, the God-man, perfect knowledge, perfect love, rejected and betrayed by Judas. You must see him for who he is in his fullness. He is God become man, and here he is betrayed by a man, a man he has brought into his intimate 
fellowship. A man who walked with him and followed him and listened to him for three years. It's hard to say. What did Judas believe about the deity of Jesus? It's hard to say for sure, but he must have missed this. He must not have believed that Jesus is God. He couldn't have, right? He'd heard the claims to deity. He just heard this word in verse 19, I am. But back to point one, he didn't trust the word. The word that revealed the word was with God and was God. He refused and rejected it. He refused and rejected the deity of Christ. And you refuse and reject the deity of Christ. You refuse and reject God who is life. And you refuse and reject the God who is life. You get death. You must see the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ as the God-man. Again, it's the foundation of our faith. Point number three. Rest in the love of Christ. Go back to the text. One of you will betray me. Verse 22. The disciples are uncertain. Again, they have no idea who it could be. Matthew tells us that, is it I, Lord, is it I, Lord, goes around the table. Again, they, they don't know that it was Judas. Verse 23. This is important. I'm drawing our point from this. As this is the first time that we read this. And remember, the whole context of this section is actually love. This betrayal interlude is preceded and followed by love. And here we see that love theme intruding. John can't get away from it. John cannot get over love. For verse 23, he was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And we know that this must be John, our author. Now, this gospel is technically anonymous. We don't, it doesn't say, I'm writing this thing to you and here's my name. We do know also that John is never named in this book. We know that it has to be one of the twelve who's writing this book. They were the only ones at this meal. We know that it's not Peter. Peter's speaking to this disciple in verse 24. We know that it's not Judas. Uh, we know that James and John were the other two with Peter that were in the close circle of three. We know that James dies too early to have written the gospel of John. If you look ahead to chapter 21, verse 20, at the end, Peter has been restored by Jesus. Peter's wondering about, what about John? Peter turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 20. And then look down at verse 24 where we read, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So John never names himself, but he does take this name for himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And again, that, that could sound a little arrogant to our 21st century social media ears, right? No big deal. I'm just the one Jesus loved, right? You can just call me, just call me the one whom Jesus loved. No, that, that's not what's, that can't be what's going on here, right? John the writer has recorded the words of John the witness, he must increase, but I must decrease. Using this title can't be an expression of pride. It's an expression of humility. He's not drawing attention to himself. His readers would have known who he was. History tells us that he became known as the apostle of love. And so here, all I think he is saying is that all that he is, his identity, is simply another person who is loved by Jesus. He is, 1333, the disciple whom Jesus loved, agapeo. 
He is 21, verse 20, the disciple whom Jesus loved, phileo. This is everything. This is what he most wanted to be identified by and known for. This is what we should most want to be identified and known for. Again, what do you want people to know about you? What's the first thing you want to make sure you slip into a conversation about yourself and about your identity that you want to be known for? Is it one who is loved by Jesus Christ? One who rests in the love of Jesus Christ. And look at the beautiful picture of this in the scene that we have here. Go back to verse 23. John 13, 23. John, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Remember, Da Vinci was a great painter, not a great historian. There's not a bunch of white dudes sitting in chairs all on one side of the table. Nobody sits like that. It doesn't make any sense. Plus, they wouldn't have even been sitting in chairs. Remember, the tables would have likely been set up in a U-shape, and they would have been tables that were low to the ground with mats all around them, and they would have been eating propped up on their left arm, eating with their right hand, somewhat with the feet off to the side and behind them. Right? We saw this in the previous chapter as Mary has come and washed Jesus' feet. She's not crawling under the table to wipe his, you know, she's, she's behind him and to his side uh, wiping his feet. They're, they're resting, they're relaxed, they're feasting. Look at verse 24. Notice something. There is no primacy of Peter here. Position at a table was important back then. Peter doesn't seem to be seated close to Christ. Verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So again, you can imagine, the room has got to be silent, it's gone around, things are weird and there's tension. You can imagine Peter trying to get John's attention, like hey, mouthing to him, you ask him, you ask him, you ask him right? trying to figure out across the room. But, but Peter seems to be far away from Jesus to a, a degree. Verse 25, so that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And so again, kind of try to get the picture. If they're eating propped up on their left arm, as they likely were, For John to then lean back against Jesus to speak to him, that tells us that John was directly to the right of Jesus, which would have been one of the positions of honor. Remember Matthew 20, when the mother of James and John, don't get your mother to go do something for you. Matthew 20, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and requests that her two sons sit, one at his right hand and one at his left in the kingdom. Those are the places of honor, right hand, left hand. Well, here is John, by the love and grace of God, in one of those places of honor at this meal. Verse 26, Jesus answers John, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, we, we can't be certain about this, but it seems that the rest of the disciples do not hear what we just heard. It doesn't seem that the rest of the disciples hear what John, the witness, is privileged to hear in his position of honor. I think Jesus is just speaking to John in verse 26. Skip the first part of 27 and look at the second part for now. Jesus takes the morsel. Oh, no, sorry. Judas takes the morsel. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then we read in verses 28 and 29 that the rest of the disciples, they had no idea. Why Jesus said this to Judas. They just seem he's sending him out on some sort of errand or something. So I think they likely didn't hear what Jesus said to John and thus don't entirely yet understand what's going on. But 
This also makes it quite possible that if Jesus is speaking to John directly at his right, and then we see him very easily handing a piece of bread to Judas, many believe that that implies that Judas would have been directly on his left, directly in the other place of honor. And also in that culture, for the host of the meal to, to offer and to share bread off of his own plate with a guest, to give, it was a very symbolic, intimate expression of, of favor and honor, the offer of friendship. It's, it's, a really, it's an amazing scene. The, the tension is palpable, the, the love is evident, but, but so is the darkness. Look at verse 30. As Judas, having taken the bread, immediately went out, and it was night. That, that phrase has to be just, just pregnant with meaning. Surely that's more than a marker of time. Yes, uh, the darkness of night has fallen, but so here falls spiritual darkness. So here falls darkness over Judas's soul. As we saw in the first half of 27, Satan entered into him. And we just saw something similar back in verse 2. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And those verses aren't in any way meant to absolve Judas of responsibility. It's meant to emphasize the, the truly demonic nature of what it is that he is doing and choosing, especially in light of who this Christ is as God, especially in light of the love of Christ. Judas is in the place of honor. Judas has been in his presence for three years. Judas is being offered food. Judas is acting and Satan is acting. Judas has given Satan a foothold in his sin, and Satan, which literally means adversary, here takes control. Are not these then the highest of stakes? Judas ultimately and finally rejects the love of Christ, and this is the result. And listen, this will be the same result for any and everyone who finally and ultimately rejects the love of Christ. One of the lessons we must then learn from Judas is the great danger of sin. Please, please stop toying with it. There is no little sin. I, that, it's, it's unlikely that Judas met Jesus three years ago and so said, I can't wait to betray this guy. No, again, it's, it's, it came slowly. It's something that he saw that he hated. He started stealing the money. He's mad about the Mary thing. This is, it's, it's growing and developing. And we see here the full fruition and the truly demonic nature of what he's doing. But how it began would have looked very, very different. J.C. Ryle writes on these verses, Trifling with the first thoughts of sin, making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and flatter us and put bad notions into our hearts and minds. All this may seem a small matter to many. But it is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. Happy, I love this, happy is he who really believes that there is a devil. And believing, watches and prays daily that he may be kept from his temptations. Please consider the example and the warning of Judas. Please consider the potential for the sin of Judas in every single one of us. And flee from that sin. It's, it's, it's crouching at the door. Run from it. Repent of it. But even more importantly than that, 
which seems hard to say, but even more importantly, the lesson we need to see most in this story of betrayal, our hope for fleeing and running and repenting of that sin, in this story of betrayal, sandwiched in between so much love, is how much we need to learn to rest in the love of Christ. See the person of Christ revealed most clearly in the love of Christ. See the love of Christ revealed most clearly in the cross of Christ. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love gives. And God's love gives his own son to sin, to our sin, to die for that sin to die an unimaginable death, to experience an unimaginable suffering that would have taken us an eternity to pay. And he does it for us, that we would never have to pay it. In this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Learn to look to and love the, uh, the love of God. In Christ, Learn to rest in and rely on the love of God in Christ. God's love for you in Christ is, is everything. It is your life and it is your hope. Not your immediate positive circumstances. Not your ease and your comfort and what you want being fulfilled. But it is the eternal love of God that gives us the fullness of life. The joy that we can find in Him now apart from circumstances. And the perfect joy that we will experience with him for the whole of eternity when we deserved nothing but condemnation. Nothing but what what Judas got. Jesus took all of it and he gave us all of him. His love really is all you need. A Christian is one who by the grace of God has had that love poured into his heart and then is daily learning to live more and more in light of that eternal love and more and more rest in and rely on the love of God in Christ. Judas rejected the love of Christ. Christians rest in the love of Christ. Point number four, good news. Skip it. I've already told you to cross out that superfluous he in verse 19. Well, no one will be sad about crossing out an extra point here. I sent VJ the outline yesterday afternoon. I was working late last night. None of you want an hour and a half sermon. But... You must learn daily to rely on the sovereignty of God. That's what point two was going to be. As God, he is Lord. As Lord, he is sovereign. And what we see in this text that we just don't have time to get into is that he's in complete control. He initiates the revelation of Judas. He commands Judas to do what he is going to do quickly. He orders and ordains it all, even the cross, even his own death, and he does it for his glory and our I am going to convince you that the sovereignty of God is such a liberating doctrine. The love of God, point three, is worthless without the sovereignty of God, point four. I said it last sermon, and I'll say it next week, but God does not and cannot act towards you in Christ in any way other than love. And that is only possible if he is both absolutely sovereign and good, willing and working, glorifying and blessing all the tiny details of your life to bring about your ultimate eternal good. We must know this. So I'm going to continue to surround you with sovereignty. You're going to surrender to sovereignty one day. Rely on the sovereignty of God. And point number five, you must be born again. I just think this is one of the big, big lessons that Judas makes most 
clear. He proves this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Judas has seen and witnessed everything. Judas has sat at the feet of the master, the rabbi. We so often think, if I, if I was just there, if I could just see, then I'd believe. Don't forget Judas. Judas heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard all the parables. He followed and lived with Jesus for three years. He witnessed all the dramatic healings, the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the mute speaking, the lame walking, the dead living. He heard the very voice of the Father in the previous chapter. What more could you want? What more could you need? He had the best example. He had an undeniable apologetic, and yet he hated and rejected and betrayed the Lord of life. Why? What must have Judas hated about Jesus? What do you think? I think there's a couple answers that we could come up with. But I think for the purpose of Reformation Sunday and for the purpose of sticking to our point, I think this is correct, though. I think, I think the thing that he must have hated, I think it was grace. The natural man hates supernatural grace. The natural man likes the idea of grace in the sense of, ah, oh, yeah, you're not perfect, and, and that's okay. You're all right just the way that you are. Right? That's what we think grace is today. That's not what grace is. Grace starts and says, no, 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 you're not perfect. And that is not okay. And that's just not okay. That's deserving of judgment in hell. You're not all right just the way that you are. And oh, by the way, there's nothing that you can do about it. But God. But man, left to himself, hates that. Because what is sin? It is ultimately and inherently selfishness. Sin is the enthronement and the glorification of self at the expense of God. Right, one more thesis from Luther's 97. Thesis 17. I think this is so important and profound to understand. Luther says, man is by nature unable to want God to be God. Indeed, he himself wants to be God. And does not want God to be God. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. That's why there's no small sin. This is what we're all doing in all of our sin. I've used the Thomas Watson quote. What is sin? Really? What does it attempt to do? Sin would not only unthrone God, but ungod him. If the sinner could help it, God would no longer be God. Sin strikes at the very deity. Sin is God's would-be murderer. And don't we have that quite literally here with Judas? He does not want God to be God, for he wants to be God. And since he wants to be God, he must do away with God. Since sin always wants to elevate and enthrone self, sin hates grace. Because grace flattens us. Grace levels us. It humbles us to the dirt. It reveals to us our true nature, that there is nothing we can do about our sin and our evil. That there is nothing good in us ourselves. And that nothing less than the substitutionary death of the God-man himself in our place can save us. The natural man hates that. The natural man hates grace. Judas heard grace. Judas witnessed grace incarnate. And he rejected him and it entirely. And in his sin, he was literally 
God's murderer. And in our sin, we attempt to do the exact same thing. What hope is there then for anyone? Of course, it is only the gracious, sovereign, saving work of God. The example of Judas in John 13 should drive us directly back to John 3. You must be born again. This is our only hope. God is our only hope. His saving grace, doing for us and in us what we cannot do for and in ourselves, is our only hope. Grace is everything. And we just sang it. Grace and grace alone. Thou must save and thou alone. Does that mean that you should then do nothing? Not at all. That, should mean, that means that you should do the one thing that John repeatedly tells you to do again and again and again through this book. It's believe. It's turn in absolute desperation and dependence to the only one who can do something. It means you call out to him and you cry out to him again and again and again and you never stop until you get him and find him and find rest for your soul. It means that you utilize the means that God has provided. If you see yourself or who you really are left to yourself, if you see the latent Judas within you, then do the very opposite thing that Judas did. Run to the Savior of sinners. Trust the word of God. See that Christ is God. Run to and rest in the love of God that saves such sinners as us. Rely on his perfect sovereignty and live. And then in the believing and the living, know always that it was all and entirely by the grace of God alone that can save sinners such as us. Is it I, Rabbi? Not if, by the grace of God, you can be born again and trust in his word and look to his son as Lord and rest in his love and trust in his sovereignty. Believe in this Lord and live. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to hear your word. Help us to keep your word. Help us to love it and trust it. Father, we know that the problem is never with your word. It's always with our hearts. How often like Judas am I? How often like Judas are, are so many of us? In our coldness and in our sin, in our dislike and our distrust. Father, reveal yourself to us through your word. Father, we are 13 chapters into this book that is here to reveal to us the Christ of all glory and of grace and of beauty and of love. Father, help us to see him. Open our eyes to see how much bigger he is than we think that he is, to see how much better he is than anything else that we are tempted uh, to look to for, for life and joy and satisfaction. Father, convince us and compel us that it is only found in him. And give us great joy in Jesus Christ. Father, help me to hate the sin that resides in my heart. Help me to reject it and to flee from it and repent of it. And to lead my family well to do the same. And to lead uh, this church uh, well to do the same. Father, help us to hate sin and love Jesus and holiness and light and life. Father, we confess and we believe that our only hope is your grace. So, Father, pour out your grace upon us. We thank you that you are the God of all grace.
So we ask now that by your spirit, through your word, word, you would work on our hearts and you would draw us to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray this all in his name. Amen.